On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss how over-reliance on cloud services and preserving vintage games go hand in hand. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 87 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community, places like the Discourse Forum, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. Plus, we snag topics from other shows around the network and give you our takes. We are down our gaming overlord, but still with me is our open source master, Nate. How is it going? It is going cold, but good. Cold, but good, I would say. I'm having fun. I, I feel like some of the weight of like the fall time hustle and bustle trying to get you know, things done before winter hits is mostly through. I'm enjoying the indoors a little bit more and, and I'm able to play with my technology somewhat. Like recently, by recently, I mean yesterday, I reimaged a Raspberry Pi 3 with Screenly using my front page Linux article I wrote some time ago because I didn't remember how to do it. And so thankfully, I took the time to make an article on front page Linux and was able to successfully, after about oh, an hour or so plus, get that going. You have to use the legacy light image, not the new image because it's not compatible with Screenly or whatever. But it's back up and running. I can now return it to its place of use and I can move on to the next project. So although it's cold and a little bit uncomfortable going from, you know, the house to my cubicle labs because you have to layer up, I am really happy with the additional time I have to work on it because, you know, outdoor projects are basically are done now. So how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Remember last week how I was just basking in how it had been warm or, you know, warm for around here? Well, we finally got Mm -hmm. that cold snap and it has been awfully chilly. So yes, we are back inside ourselves just as much. I can't wait for spring to get here. I'm very much not a winter person. So I'm not entirely sure why I live in a cold climate, probably because I don't do well (laughs) with a whole lot of people either. And everywhere there's a lot of people. It's warm pretty much all year round. So I guess I will be in cold climates for the rest of my life just because I can't get these two different things that I like or don't like to balance out. Speaking of Raspberry Pi. Yes. I know I'm getting one for Christmas. Excellent. My husband showed it to me to make sure it's the right thing, but he won't let me have it yet. It's sitting in this closet behind me. (laughs) And every time I go in there to get my clothes out, I have to look at it. How mean is that? That is kind of mean. (laughs) He could have at least wrapped it for you, not just leaving it there. He'll eventually wrap it. We don't have a tree up yet anyway, so there's really no good place for it to go. But our closet seems to be where all of the presents get stashed. But I am... Getting a Raspberry Pi for Christmas, I already know. I've looked at the box. I'm just not allowed to touch it yet. That's understandable. And I would probably do the exact same thing. Well, not for me. If, if I bought it for me for Christmas, I would just open it immediately. And then I'd wrap it back up. And then they go, oh, look what Santa brought me to the kids. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of kids as well, we made it through first Lego League regional competition here on Saturday. It was so much fun. I'm completely proud of our kids. It was really cool to see the different innovation projects that came in from different groups around our area. There were some really neat ones. It's my first year. Apparently, it was also the first time they brought in a Kids Choice Award to it. Each participating child got a little ticket. So they'd go around to the other tables, look at their innovation project, read about it, and pick their favorite one. So there was a award given for the best project as voted on by their peers, which was really, really cool. 
our kids won for best innovation project from the judges this year, which completely blew me away. Like I knew our kids did a really good job. I know they had a solid presentation. But at that point, I was just trying to make sure that I was keeping track of all of the kids we had there, that they were getting to their different robot matches and presentation schedules at the right time. And when we'd reached the end of the day, because it was a pretty long day, By the time we reached the end of the day, I was just so glad that there was no more keeping track of time and trying to get everybody there on time. And when they announce who wins, they just don't say team number, blah, 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 the building beasts, which that's the name of our team. The building beasts. I like it. The building beasts. Yes. They actually go through this really cool spiel. And I don't know if it's every single time. We had an amazing MC as well. The guy who emceed the matches was so much fun. Not only did he have a voice for it, but he was just so much fun. He kept the crowd that we had there engaged. He kept the kids having fun. Like it was a blast. He made it so much more fun. That's a talent. Absolutely. And the MC, as he is announcing who won, he'd kind of do this little story and in this story or lead into who won, he's dropping little hints. And the first one, I'm like, mm, that kind of sounds like it's our, and it clicks. I'm like, oh my gosh, you can hear me on video. No way, that's <laughs> our team. That's awesome. <laughs> And they did an amazing job. So now that regionals are over, we have a month to prepare for state. So even though co-ops are almost done, I am still going to be incredibly busy through the month of December and good part of January as our team moves on to state competition. Way to go, Building Beast. You did an amazing job. I'm incredibly proud of you. And I know you'll all work really, really hard and do your best at state in January. Yeah, that's really awesome. There's a local Lego League here as well. I haven't gotten involved in it for some reason. On video, I've seen some of the things that they've done. And that's really neat, just the different obstacles or whatever. I, I, I always know what yours did specifically. They would have different tasks that have to complete with these robots. And, and I thought it was very cool because it's not just kill each other, kill each other's robot which I'm not big into that, but doing productive things with robots. It gets the imagination jogging as to what you can do to automate things around in your life. I mean, I think it'd be cool to have like an R2-D2 follow me, even if it's made out of Legos. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. That is exactly how first Lego leagues go. It is a robotics program and it's not one of the destroy your other bots program. You have specific tasks that you're supposed to do. They're called missions. And the amount of missions that you can get done, I think it's two minutes and 30 seconds. However many points you score by accomplishing certain missions or reaching different bonus points is how you win overall. My favorite part about this program, and 4-H really used to be that way. I didn't like the way our 4-H was going, but another reason why I love this program is it really helps to teach not only innovation and thinking outside the box, it teaches coding skills, robotic skills, but it also focuses on teamwork and making sure that everybody inside your team is getting a say in the project. You're determining how choices are being made within your team. You're having to do public speaking. How do you divvy out those ways of not only creating your presentation, but making sure that everybody has a voice in presenting, which can be really, really hard for some. It forces those that want to do the robotic side only to actually have to participate in the public speaking side 
which is a skill everybody needs to learn. I love the life skills, the education skills that come from this program. It really is a great one. And if you have a Lego League in your area, get involved. And if you don't, you can definitely start your own. It is amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, I agree that public speaking is something that every kid should work on. And in the co-op with my kids, they have to give presentations every week. My youngest absolutely just despises it. And you got to like really coax them. But I, yeah, I think it will pay off ultimately because you're just not going to have, you're not going to be nervous. You may not want to speak in front of people, but you can get rid of those nerves. You're not going to have those nerves as they get older. So I think it's such a good skill to have, be able to talk in front of people. Absolutely. Even if that's not going to be your profession, you always have to talk in front of somebody, whether that's a job interview or Mm -hmm. doing a presentation to maybe another small team on a project you're working on and the like, just having those skills and knowing that I may not like doing it, but I've done it before, I've made it through before and I can make a huge difference as they move on throughout their lives. Or even asking where they keep the almond milk at the store. You just, you know, you got to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and containers. By running App Platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than any other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup, too. As a DLN Extend listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app on their App Platform for free, and it gets better. DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash dln. Again, go to do.co slash dln to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. I may not be a Facebook user, but everybody who is or uses Instagram, since they are one and the same, knows about what happened the day Facebook and Instagram went down. Now, they rely extremely heavily on web services. And as I hear it, even though the system went down, they couldn't get in and fix it because their cards, their entry system was also based on that same cloud service. And they got to go through some extreme measures in order to get into the building and get Facebook up and running once again. Cloud services can be extremely handy, but when things go bad, they can really go bad. There was mass hysteria. Cats and dogs were living together. It was just terrible. Yeah, I think that there's an issue when we're so reliant on cloud services and we have no local backups or there was another word I used for this when we were talking about it, but on-premises services that we can get into trouble. Let's say get into home automation. I know a guy who's really into home automation. He lives here. <laughs> I were super reliant on like Google or Amazon and my internet goes out. Then what? Amazon recently went out. Was it yesterday or this last weekend? These outages do happen. It's not if there's an outage, it's when there's an outage. And so you have to have backups. You can't be so reliant on any particular service you don't control that you lose functionality. 
I'm a big believer in being able to run the services you can effectively without the intense technical debt in doing so, but at the same time, also understanding when maybe it's better to use a cloud service, but what is your fallback plan? What is your emergency plan when those things go out? You just don't have something or what's the consequences for that going out? With Facebook, the consequences were they were not able to get in the building. They lost complete functionality without that on-prem interface or the ability to have local control of it. With Amazon, I don't really know exactly what the cause was. I haven't read any of the reports on it. With their services going down, if you were real reliant on Alexa for, let's say, controlling the lights in your house, could you still control the lights in your house? And I think it branches out to more than just practical services or just services that we use in everyday life, but it also goes into like things like game preservation, the ability for you to experience an art locally that they may not be able to otherwise, you know, on the internet or or whatever. I know you recently shown your kids an amazing game from your childhood. Please, please let everybody know what this amazing game was. I have shared multiple games with my children over the years that I remember from my childhood. Most of you know that's how my daughter got started in Sonic. That was one monster I created, and now she believes she needs to own every single Sonic game available. She let me know the other day that she still needs an Xbox 360 because there's one Sonic game that can only be played right now on that console. So that is apparently on her wish list. The other monster that I created was this weekend. We were discussing the Oregon Trail where it passed through some of the hardships and stuff that different peoples experienced on this journey. And I was like, okay, guys, I played Oregon Trail all of the time in elementary school and you guys have to experience this. I knew that I could find it on some of these different websites that preserve these older games, these vintage games. And sure enough, I found the 1990 and the 1992 version. The 92 version is the one that I played the most in school. My kids have played quite a lot of both during this time. And I saw as they were firing up on the websites that they are using DOSBox in order to do this which now, after talking to Nate quite a bit before the pre-show, I will be setting up these games locally. So instead of them playing them through a web browser using DOSBox, they will be using DOSBox on their local machine to play these games. But still, it's been absolutely hilarious to hear from my kitchen, the kids yelling, Mom's got cholera, Dad died. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And just the different things as they're going through this and making choices in the game. My older boy said that he liked the 1992 version better because it was less pixelated. To which my response was, <laughs> you play Minecraft and Terraria, so I don't want to hear a thing about pixelated games. <laughs> right. <laughs> then it got me thinking about the fact that these are games that I loved. I really enjoyed Sonic 2 as a kid. We didn't play Sonic 1 as much, but Sonic with Tails was the one that I remembered the most growing up. Oregon Trail was a game that I remember playing in school. These are things that I enjoy sharing with my kids. I enjoy either watching them go, oh my gosh, you actually played that, or in the case of Oregon Trail, really enjoying these games, even though they're not the latest and greatest. What is it going to be like when my kids have kids? Are they going to be able to share the games that they loved? There are so many proprietary services in which these games are on, and some of these services go down, sometimes for good. 
What are going to be their options to share these things with their children and their grandchildren down the road? I've actually had that exact same conversation with my kids about games because I've been sharing with them a lot of my childhood vintage games from the Commodore 64, the Atari, a little bit of the Amiga, uh, some Apple II and DOS games. Of course, Nintendo and Super Nintendo. There's others. The thing that concerns me is so many of these newer games are so reliant on services that are hosted outside of the game itself. In fact, there was a, I cannot remember if it was a PS3 or PS4 game, PlayStation, for those that don't know, not the uh, connector on the back of a computer, which is only PS2. Some of these games, cannot remember which one, I think I, I talked to Matt about it, but it relies on the server to actually get the full benefit out of the game. And so the game is kind of a shell of itself because you don't have that cloud service anymore. And I think that's very sad and very unfortunate because that means that the time that you spent playing, you know, whatever this game was, is no longer enjoyable as it was originally intended. In a sense, the art, the craft that was uh, designed and, and enjoyed by many just kind of deteriorates and rots in the ether of time. There is some good news for some of these old platforms, like the Wii and the, I think it's the original DS. There is a way to restore the online services. Some community has actually pulled some resources together so they can preserve that gaming experience on the Wii. Emulation is also actually a great way of doing that too. The Dolphin is an emulator for Wii and I think GameCube, if I'm not mistaken. And you can have some of those online experiences, you know, thanks to largely in part to Linux and so forth. That's great. But then again, you know, if the internet goes down, how do you enjoy some of these games, some of the fun that you once had? That's even more true in the games that require these anti-cheat services. We know, and it's been one of the biggest battles here on Linux, is not being able to play certain games because it doesn't play well with the anti-cheat services. Now, if we go forward some years, that company is no longer in business, that game no longer makes them enough money to warrant keeping those services alive, you will still have these pockets of communities that love those games that want to share those games. What happens to that gaming experience for them when those services are no longer up and running? It's a good question. This is in part why I think I don't believe anybody should be forced to do anything. I really believe it would be the most responsible thing of these game houses to actually release their games or parts of the games like the servers and whatnot to the open source community to basically a bunch of Linux hackers and allow people to continue to preserve those experiences. And there's no money in it, which is probably why they don't do it. But there is something to be said for keeping some of these things alive so that the code can be accessed, so it can be analyzed too or improved upon. I mean, it's not like it's a one-way deal for these businesses. You know, they can have, in many ways, what the community has done to different projects has always been better than the was originally designed. For example... To loop it back to Legos, some time ago, when Lego started doing the robotics and whatnot, some clever programmers hacked it and improved upon it. And at first, Lego was going to respond very negatively toward it, but they stopped. And instead of going after these people who are releasing code that works with their proprietary bits, they decided just to support it whole hog. And they said, now the open source community basically built something better than they ever imagined because of the ingenuity and the passion and everything else that sometimes organizations, you know, businesses just do not have because it's not their core competency. And so there's something to be said, I think, not just for, you know, Lego, but for games and so forth about open sourcing and being able to run those services yourself. So also to loop it back into, you know, what do you do when the internet is down? If you can host your own service for replicating your online Wii services in your own network, if you want, I think that's huge in preserving the game and preserving the fun and then being able to share and pass down that fun you had to the next generation. Because sometimes I think people lose sight of where we are today when they don't know where we came from. You know, I know that my kids, they really enjoy playing a lot of these old games 
and uh, and even my oldest, he comments he thinks the graphics are good. So these 8-bit graphics are good, which surprises me a little bit. I see the game's mat play, and those are good graphics, or amazing graphics, perhaps. And they'll go right from playing, you know, like some little big planet game or whatever, I guess, Sackboy Adventure. I don't know what it's called. Here's my old man, this coming out. They'll stop <laughs> playing that to play the C64 Maxi that I have in the house right now because the games are fun. And without that preservation, the hobbyist community that's kept the Commodore 64 platform in the games alive, you know, preserving it, spending all the time preserving all these old games, I mean, then they'd just be lost. I think it's sad to just... Uh, this might be a little bit dramatic here, but, you know, letting a gallery, an artist gallery, just burn down, not saving any of the paintings, you know. Commodore burnt down, essentially. It is no more. But people have taken the time to preserve that, take out the bits of art, repackage them, and be able to share them with the world. And people can continue to enjoy these games long after support has fallen off for it. I think it's such an important thing. I absolutely have to agree with you. And especially for kids, it goes to show that it's not all about the graphics. Yeah, graphics can matter. And in particular games, it does add or take away from the game itself. But it's the story of the game. It's the gameplay. How well does it work? E.T. is a vintage game. And what are the things mm-hmm. that everybody remember about the game? It was the gameplay itself was horrible. They didn't get it worked on long enough. It was a rush job. And so there were so many other things wrong with it. Now, had they been able to take more time, perfect the game, polish them things up, now we may be talking differently about that game. And so it doesn't really matter how old it is. It's how well did the game play? How fun was it? What was the story that was told in it? What is the experience that I got from playing it? And as you keep saying it, it really is an art form. All of these people that spend so much time creating the characters, creating the scenes, creating the code for these games really are working on their form of art. And just like we want to save paintings from several thousand years ago, We want to save games from the past because they really do help tell a story of what was society like at the time that these games came out? What was technology like at the time that these games came out? And preserving them not only is so much fun, because to be fair, I still like getting a game of Sonic in every once in a while, but it's also telling the story of our tech history, preserving that for future generations and helping Others get inspired by what we had before and what we have now, just being able to experience the difference in the two. Wendy, I'm actually really excited that you brought up the whole ET on the Atari 2600. I put in our show notes a link to a project where they fixed the bugs and improved the gameplay of ET because the open source community or because the hacker community is so passionate, there is a fix. So you can actually enjoy that. You can download Stella on your Linux machine, an Atari 2600 emulator, and you can share show your kids an improved version of that game. Actually, it's pretty cool. So uh, link is in the show notes for those that are interested in playing an improved version of E.T. Awesome. That is so very cool. And it really goes to show one of the reasons why I love being a part of this community in general. One of the reasons why I love open source or hacking of these different things, it allows for so much growth, not only for people to work on passion projects, keeping these things alive, preventing us from relying on these cloud services quite so much, but 
also goes to show the amazing aspects of the community in general. Here, we're talking about games, but I know that there's so many other things that the open source community does to keep different pieces of software alive, to keep older pieces of hardware alive. The world would be so much worse off without the open source community and the way they keep stuff going. Completely 100% agree with you. I would say the open source community preserves the joy of the human experience. Now it's your turn. Take some time. Tell us all about it. What vintage games do you still love to play? What games do you wish you could show your kids, your grandkids, whether you have kids now or they're still to come in the future? How do you feel about some of these persistent services, not only for gaming, but for every other day kinds of use? You can either drop us a comment in the video below or head on over to the discourse forum. There can be some very awesome conversations over there. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the passive manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. We're not done there. Nate, you've been spending some time on your C64 Maxi playing some more 8-bit games, having all kinds of fun with it, and your kids. What have you been up to lately? Like you said, the C64 Maxi is a re-implementation, essentially, of the Commodore 64. Basically, it runs on some sort of a Linux-powered device. See, there you go, Linux preserving. Yeah, instead of having the cartridge ports and the 8-pin joystick ports and everything else. It uses USB and HDMI. You can use it on modern TVs and everything else. It's really easy to play. It has a nice carousel mode so you can select what game you want. You can pop thumb drive, a USB drive, and you can store whatever you want, play any games you want. You can even develop on it too. It's an accurate reproduction of the hardware. So even all the glitches and the weirdness that exists in the hardware are completely emulated within it and you can enjoy anything that's been produced on it. I think there's very little that won't work on it. And the things that don't work on it, people have actually patched to make it work better with the C64. And one such game from my childhood that I love so much is my favorite racing game of all time. And to this day, I still really enjoy playing it, but I hadn't played it on the Maxi because it, I couldn't get it to work, the images that existed. But it's called Racing Destruction Set. It's by Electronic Arts. It was released in 1985, I believe, 84, 85. It's not just a racing game, but it's a racing game where you have a couple of rules. You can go racing or destruction, get things like oil 
scale and landmines to trip up your opponent. And you can also build your own tracks with jumps and you can choose between pavement, dirt, and ice. I played it on the maxi with my oldest with the help of a YouTuber, this 8-bit show and tell. I sent him a message saying, use the maxi, love the thing. He had a really great video that he did on it. I said, but I can't play this particular game called Race and Destruction so that I just can't get it to work. Uh, maybe a few hours later, I got a message from the guy and he pointed me to a couple other images. One is a cartridge image, the other is a D81 image. It was a two-sided disc game. It's a pretty involved game. And so it has just one image. So the gameplay is actually improved on the maxi, improved game experience than what I had growing up. Also, you know, things load faster too. My oldest, he spent a lot of time playing it. He even said, these graphics are amazing, which I'm like, wouldn't go that far, but it is fun. And I'm amazed how well the game still holds up. And it was still fun to build tracks and everything. I mean, it's a pretty intuitive interface, really. We played it for quite a while, and it pushed the PS4 off the top for the gaming machine in the house for the weekend. Now, my youngest, he thinks it's a terrible game. He likes Mario Kart better. I totally understand it's probably a more fun game, really. But seeing the old game continue to be enjoyed, I think is important. It had lots of discussions about it. There's different cars you can choose and different things you can do to modify it. Probably the first racing game in history to have different car options, be able to set up with different tires and engine types and such. Probably the first game to do that. Pretty important, I think, in gaming history when it comes to what makes a good racing game. I can't think of any racing game in the recent past that doesn't have those exact same things. To be fair, of course, we own Sonic Team Racing on multiple platforms, both the PC and the Xbox version. And that's one of the things the kids love about it that is synonymous with racing games anymore is picking your car, making changes to your car, choosing your track. The groundwork is all laid here on the Commodore 64. It really is a lot of fun. My oldest, though, he did use a USB wired PS4 controller to use on the C64, which I think kind of cheapened the experience a little bit. But, you know, whatever. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, he should be using a joystick, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> You really want to stick with the old school, old school version. None of those modern fancy dancy controllers for you, huh? Well, uh, I think you can go Super Nintendo controller on a Commodore 64 and that's okay. But I think anything newer than that, I don't think that's right. I did actually buy an adapter for my actual Commodore 64. So you can plug in Sega Genesis or Nintendo controllers into the Commodore 64 and use it. In fact, you can even define different buttons and such to make your game experience better. And I think that's good. Nintendo Rune Platform games for the Commodore 64. They were fun until Nintendo came and basically did it better. So I think the Commodore 64 has to sort of follow suit at this point. Awesome. So I understand that you were uh, chatting with a very funny man in the DLN community. Uh, is this true? Are the rumors true? <laughs> The rumors are true. I actually did bring it up here a few episodes ago when we were talking about what we were thankful for, that Shady's name got brought up because this was kind of the beginning of that conversation with him. And when that show dropped, like just before that show dropped, he was like, ah, you know, I'm really not sure if I'm actually going to be using Manjaro anymore. But when he was playing with it, he took some really, really good notes of things that he liked and things that he didn't like, which I find so nice because for me, as a Manjaro user, there's different things that he notices that either I don't or I don't really care about, or it's one of those things that it's so cool to get somebody else's perspective, even if in the end, we don't come to the same agreement on 
this distribution. And I know Matt's always giving you trouble about Open Sousa and how much it's not for him. It's fun to joke that way. And I'm totally cool if somebody doesn't love Manjaro as much as I do. It's okay. Matt gives me a hard time because he just doesn't know any better. He's just Matt. That's okay. <laughs> it's cool to have those conversations. As much as I do love the Open Sousa project, I realize there are shortcomings. I acknowledge them. I can't necessarily fix them. I wish I could. I lack a lot of those skills. It's good to have that conversation because then you can say, well, if you're going to try it, these are some areas you might find a little bit rough or things that you might not like about it. Right. And as long as you know that about it, I mean, nothing is perfect. Let's say there was a perfect distribution. When that new piece of hardware came out, it won't be perfect anymore because it just won't. Or as times change, it needs more features. You add features and then new things break. So you're never going to have a perfect distribution, but you might have the best distribution for you. And the fact that you found that in Manjaro is great because if you get the work done that needs to be done on a regular basis, which I know you are, then there is no reason to not continue to use it. Absolutely. I don't have the best discipline in sysadmin type tasks. So I personally need a system that will accommodate for my bad behavior, essentially, which is why I like OpenSUSE. And that's part of the reason why I don't run pure Arch. And there were certain things that he brought up as he was sharing his notes with me are things that I didn't even think about, things that I didn't look into. He installed the GNOME version and the minimal version on top of that. So if you haven't ever looked at Manjaro, you haven't ever tried to install it or went and download any of the different versions of the distro, typically they offer different versions of the same desktop environment. So in this case, this is another place we differ. I'm a Plasma person, he's a GNOME person, and then I typically don't go with the minimal, but this is the route he went. And anybody who wants a basic setup and then add some things on top of it, this is a great way to go. So there were some extensions already installed, but they're not turned on yet. So it really gives you the option of, hey, here's some stuff that a lot of people like, but they're not turned on by default. That's kind of up to you to do. The other thing, and one thing I hadn't looked at at all, is he loves the fact that Manjaro uses ButterFS as its file system. There are a few options that were turned on by default that he didn't really care about. So in his tinkering, he turned off the auto defrag and a discard option because what he'd read in different things is, yeah, these can cause issues down the line. Now, I haven't had issues with them. I'd be really curious to talk to Manjaro and see why they chose to turn on different features. But this was one of those things that for him, it was options that he could quickly turn off that he looked at, but definitely one of those things that he's like, oh, where are they going with this and why did they put that in? He was also struggling with some of the power management. Now, I believe this is also partially because you're going with a stripped down version of Manjaro. It really is pretty gosh darn minimal. I haven't had any issues as far as laptops go and dealing with power consumption too much, but I'm not on my laptops on the go quite as much. I really am a lover of my desktop systems. I am pretty old school in that route. I do have laptops. We do use laptops for my personal system. I really don't look at power management too option because those mobile devices aren't my top concern. So it's really interesting to get that feedback from somebody else. And the fact that he was having issues 
with hibernation. He doesn't use his laptop all the time. He wants to be able to interact with it, let it go to sleep, and after so long for it to hit the hibernation stage. And in that way, you're really saving the battery even more. So you can go several days without picking it up. Then when you do need it, open it up, get some work done, let it go back to sleep, and not worrying about the fact that, oh my gosh, I haven't touched it, and now the battery's dead. All right. I've done that before. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's such a bummer when you're like, oh, I just need to pop this open really quick, look at something, do something. And you're like, "Ah, yeah, never mind. That's not happening. It's absolutely dead. I know you've talked about how easy it was to use pipe wire on OpenSUSE, and he is echoing the exact same thing. It was a really clean and easy switch from Pulse Audio to pipe wire on Manjaro. The other really big issue he had came with printing. So with the minimal version of Manjaro, you don't have printing installed or enabled at all. Like I said, the Manjaro minimal is pretty gosh dang minimal. So when you go ahead and install the Manjaro printer package, this has a whole bunch of additional drivers and that includes like the HP Toolbox, HP Printer options, where if you're already going for a minimal option of the distro, you don't want drivers for printers that you're not using. And I completely understand this complaint about Manjaro or getting the printers installed on this type of system. It would make more sense for you to install a minimal printer package and then add on whichever additional drivers you need for your specific printer. Very, very awesome feedback on that. Yeah, it's interesting. People who go the minimal route and then install the bits they want versus install the recommended set up and then remove the bits you don't want. Two different ways of getting to the same end. I tend to like the, give me the buffet, I'll remove the things I don't want off my plate or whatever, and then I'll be happier. This way I can can kind of like sample what is there. You really have to tailor your experience to what works best for you. I'm a big believer in that idea that my way is not the best way, it's just the best way for me. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about this before. That's one of the things that makes Linux so appealing to those of us who use it is because there is no one right way, this minimal first and add on works best for him. There's other people that go all the way down to starting with something like Gentoo and build up pure arch and build up. I'm also of the same. I have installed the minimal before, but I really prefer to go with a straight plasma desktop on the full-fledged Manjaro and then take away the bits and pieces that I don't want, especially because when I'm installing a system, it's in a hurry and I don't want to be like, oh my gosh, I forgot to install that. I forgot to do that when I'm in the middle of trying to get something done because there's always something else to do. It's part of the reason why I don't use PureArch in general. It really comes down to a time constraint for me. It's just not the right option. The AUR is so awesome. There is so much available out there, but if you are like Bitchady and you're very comfortable with using snaps and flat packs, the AUR has less appeal. There is a downside to the AUR, whereas in it is definitely a community pile of packages. You need to be looking at them, making sure everything's good to go, and doing updates. That is more likely where you're going to run in with issues on your system, not necessarily 
the update that's coming down directly from Arch or the update that's coming down directly from Manjaro, but additional packages that you may have installed through the AUR that is now having some sort of conflict with that. Arch really does have going for it is the AUR, although you get a myriad of opinions as to whether or not you should use it. I definitely see the benefit of it, especially if you can parse through yeah. some of the code before you begin the process. Make sure it's not script or whatever the recipe isn't downloading anything that you disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. And so coming to the end, of this conversation with him he was really wanting to stay with an ubuntu based something debian based just because if there's newer packages that he wanted he could get that through a flat pack he wasn't really too worried about having a rolling distro and then there was the topic last week on destination linux where there was the interview with the main developer from lutris and that developer was talking about how important getting some of these updates and advancements are for gaming and has him thinking a little bit more about, hmm, maybe I should be looking into these rolling releases a little bit more if gaming is something I want to go with. I don't want to touch on that subject too much. I really, really want Matt to be here when we're diving into those more modern gaming and how having some of these rolling releases or these faster updates really make a difference for gaming. We've got lots Lots more to go in this conversation with BitShady. It's not over. Really enjoyed his reflections on my favorite distro, Manjaro. It's good to have those conversations. Even if he doesn't choose Manjaro as his distribution, he experienced it. He had a little bit of an exploration. He better understands other people's preferences and it, and it gives him to another perspective on another way to determine what's best for his computer requirements. So that's awesome. He had the conversation and those are the kind of conversations that need to happen. I'm glad it did. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Make sure you visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels, all the shows, and creators at destinationlinux.network. If you would like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description or drop us a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag. Michael keeps telling me that there will be a rainbow vomit shirt dropping sometime. I don't know when, but when it comes <laughs> along, you're definitely going to want one. You can also find stuff from shows across the rest of the network on our DLN merch store. Go grab you some, buy yourself an early Christmas present. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 